You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 106. Uh, 105 for me, but... Oh, that's right. Counting. You missed I, one. The, one. the one episode I wasn't on. You'll have to do one without me, <laughs> yeah. just so we're even. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wish I could do every one without me, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we have a, a really good guest today, and it actually ties in. I just got a book for my birthday um called oh, happy uh, birthday forget- by the way for for oh, tom's birthday was just I'm yesterday the oldest i've ever been um <laughs> i think I've, I've made that joke multiple times on this podcast before too <laughs> but uh uh i just got a book for my birthday that was um outdoor kids in an inside world was the title of it and it was awesome. getting kids outside and uh we have a, a almost two-year-old and i'm really eager to i have some ideas already of how to get them outside and get them to enjoy nature and the outdoors but um, I'm interested in hearing and, what this conversation is going to be about, too. And we've had the conversation on multiple podcasts with multiple guests about starting this conversation with nature and native plants with children. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's it's a little bit easier to shape those ideas at a younger age than it is to convert someone uh, at an older age. And, and we're always talking about how do we turn people onto this message, and it's a great way to yeah. start. We're grooming them, we're except gro- for native plants <laughs> instead of other things. So, but um, without that – or without – getting too far in the weeds already, why don't we introduce our guest today? And uh, Laura, why don't you introduce yourself? Because I forgot to ask you how to pronounce your last name, and I don't want to <laughs> screw it up as easy as it looks. It's only five letters. But why don't you introduce yourself, tell us who you are and, and where you're from. Thanks, Tom. Well, and you have a great sense of humor, so we could have just let you go with that last <laughs> yeah. name bit. Yeah. <laughs> To see where you, t- where you would take it. Um, my name is Laura Milan, and I'm with the Children and Nature Network. We're a national nonprofit working primarily in the U.S., but also around the world to connect and reconnect children, families, and communities to the natural world. Awesome. I, I love that mission. So can you tell us for our listeners that are not familiar with the organization Children in Nature, could you tell us a little bit about the history of, of your organization? Sure. Of course. Uh, back in 2005, uh, an investigative journalist named Richard Louvre, also a book author, had been noticing he'd been really um, both seeing trends within his own family, with his own kids, and in the world, um, this almost generational disconnect from nature. In, in one generation, childhood seemed to have moved indoors. And there are a whole bunch of really complex societal reasons for that, everything from the advent of technology to two-parent working families. None of these things are bad or good in and of themselves, but you put a bunch of different factors together, and childhood truly moved indoors. Um, And he was noticing that, and he was writing about it, and he was exploring that, and he ended up writing a book called Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. And he coined that phrase, nature deficit disorder. It was never intended to be a medical diagnosis, but it was kind of the book heard around the world. He was suddenly, he was a New York 
selling New York Times bestseller list overnight. He was being contacted by educators and psychologists and social workers and pediatricians and urban planners and people saying, you've just put words to something that we have been noticing and we haven't quite been able to articulate what is really going on with children today, with the ways in which they're engaged in the natural world or not. Uh, And it became kind of the rallying cry for a global movement. There were lots of amazing organizations and people out in the world working to connect children to nature, to get kids outdoors, outdoor programs, outdoor recreation, outdoor learning. But that book, that phrase really mobilized a global movement, brought lots of people together across many different sectors to dig into this from an evidence-based perspective. One of the first things uh, our organization did was we really started um investigating and pulling together research from around the world on this topic. So he started working on this about a year later, Rich and a group of peers and colleagues formed the Children and Nature Network. And today, 15 years later, uh, we're a, a much bigger, bolder organization. We are tackling nature connection from a systemic point of view. We look at the big systems that impact children's lives where they live, where they go to school, where they have opportunities to be outside for play and recreation. And we really try to push nature into all of those settings so that kids have true daily regular access to the many, many benefits that we know nature brings. And that's, I'm glad you brought up that book. And I didn't realize it was affiliated with with this whole program because that was just a book that was recommended to me within the last probably two weeks, that, that last child in the woods. And unfortunately they don't have it on Libby. So I got to find another way to, to get my hands on it. So, but this is, this is something that I can say I've experienced firsthand. Like I know in my childhood growing up in at least my generation, growing up in a large suburb, you know, I sent, spent the bulk of my days outside and, and without parental supervision, um, just exploring and learning. And, I guess that was a concern when my, my children are now this year they'll be 19 and 22 when we had our children we specifically moved somewhere rural there weren't a lot of kids so we wanted they they didn't have the same interaction now I know there's you know they in in their lifetime there's internet and discord and and Xbox live and all these different ways and TikTok to communicate but they spent the bulk of their childhood outside too because they didn't have very many other options and we kind of forced them but you literally I, lock them out of the house is what i what i've heard is that wrong you, 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 you said you can't come back in uh, uh, the funny thing is that that was childhood for me you yeah. know that oh, yeah. door was locked and you couldn't come in until lunchtime <clears throat> you know at lunch you, you know we'd be banging can we have a glass of water and like it would get put outside like a, like a prisoner but i look fondly about those those memories but i i see as time progresses even now i feel it's gotten worse yeah. and, um and i would say even uh so i just turned 33 so i grew up most of my childhood without phones and and like a lot of screens more screens than you did friend yeah. but that's the only thing I can think of that's really changed is that we took a screen where it was a family screen where you had a TV and you sat down and watched the news and Jeopardy and, and Wheel of Fortune and all that to everyone had their own screen and they had constant access to it. Is is that what made things worse or and, and do you, am I and oversimplifying I just that? Before, before you kick in, I'm sorry, just because I yeah. want to throw in a part too. The, the one difference that I can see, like when I was a kid, there were no – 
dual income families. It was all single income mm-hmm. families. Yeah. So there was always a stay at home parent. Yeah. Um, you know, there was always someone kind of that, like there is a little bit of that difference, I, mm-hmm. I'd say a little bit, but I, I'm curious if you see in your experience, if, if it is getting worse, like if, if there's something saying that this is a problem that continues to grow. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think you're raising, you're both raising real reasons mm-hmm. for, um, children spending more time indoors technology is here to stay. And, and again, none of these factors are, are bad just unto themselves. Technology does many wonderful things for us. You know, it's, it's always about finding balance for kids. And even when we think about outdoor time, helping kids make choices that are healthy, uh, that are going to be good for them in the long term. that's about helping kids learn about balance too. Right. But, you know, I think, I think we have to be careful when we think about the two-income families. I think that that is a big component, uh, but we also have to recognize that there have always been families in lower-income brackets for whom two working parents was a requirement just to get by. That's often uh, divided along lines of race, geography, etc. And so I certainly think that as more in particular, during a certain era, women entered the workforce. You did have more kids staying in after-school programs, uh, coming home, being lock-key kids, maybe watching other siblings, um, not just having that freedom to be outside playing all day during the summer. They would typically now be in a child care program of some kind. So certainly changes in family structures around the world, not just in the U.S., that has an impact, certainly. I don't know that we, we don't look at the science on this topic as much as we look at the benefits of nature and why it's not just nice to have for kids, but critically important for their healthy development. Um, But so there's a change in family structure. You know, suddenly we became a a world that had 24 access to global news and all the bad, scary things that were happening. There were some really high profile cases, I think in the eighties and nineties with child abductions. And suddenly the outdoors didn't feel quite as safe. Do we really let our kids just disappear on their bikes all day? Which is what I did. Um, People started to be more aware of of safety when in fact rates of crimes against children hadn't necessarily gone up. We just had access to that information all of the time. Um, Technology is a huge piece. I, um, you know, I grew up in the era of we had a phone on the wall in the kitchen with a really long cord <laughs> that you hope would get you far enough away from your brother so you could, like, you know, talk to your friends. Um, it's very different today. I have a 16-year-old, and even the access to technology that he has at 16 from when he was a baby, it was pretty easy for me to keep him off screens when he was two, three, four, or five because it just wasn't um, as accessible. There weren't a lot of apps for little kids. It's really changing quickly and dramatically. And it's something that parents, caregivers, anyone who is concerned about the health and well-being of children, we have to really strive to find some balance because it's not going away and it's not necessarily bad. And there are apps out in the world, PlantSnap, for example, you guys are plant mm-hmm. people, right? There are ways to um, keep kids engaged in the natural world while still having access to their technology, which they love to have in their pockets, right? Um it's just, it's a really complex issue. And so we uh, focus on solutions and how do we help reconnect kids to the natural world? It's, it is absolutely essential for their growth and development. So we want, we want to focus on benefits and solutions, but I I don't want to at least not approach this next topic. But before I just want to throw in the comment, 
that the phone struggle was real because, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I say without having that experience, so many people don't have good phone etiquette. Like you had to have good phone etiquette because you had all your conversations in front of your family. Like, and I remember getting yelled at, like, that's not how you answer the phone. That's not how you talk on the phone. And then now you can just have private conversations where there really wasn't private conversations unless you could stretch that phone cord outside or to yeah. a bathroom or, or bedroom. So it's like, yeah. I, I get that. Um, well, think about what happens in group texts and chats and all these online services that kids are, you know, Snapchat, all the different things they're in. There is no parent around the corner of the kitchen hearing that you know, online bullying, all the things that are happening really are happening sort of outside of the supervision of parents. And while we were certainly left to our own devices outdoors, there was a certain type of social emotional learning that was happening for kids of my generation and other generations um, in the outdoors. We know that when kids play outdoors together in unstructured activities, they play more creatively. They invent their own games. They play cooperatively. They take more kind of healthy risks. I'm going to jump over this rock or try to climb this little tree. They uh, develop confidence. They actually build fine and gross motor skills in a way that you do not develop when you're sitting inside on the couch looking at an iPad. Um, the learning that was happening was really important, and that is a piece that's really lost right now. So we before we talk about the, the benefits and the solutions, the one piece that we, we want to make sure we don't skip over is how things like race, income, identity, ability, and postal code all factor mm -hmm. into – to accessibility to nature. Some some things have changed. Some things haven't changed. And this has always been a factor for some people, some, some accessibility to nature. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you saw some of that language on our website. I we think I took it exactly from your website. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled that you took it from our website. That's great. Um, we really believe at Children and Nature Network and our partners and all the organizations that we work with around the world, we all have this deep belief that Regular access to healthy outdoor spaces is just a basic human right of all children. All children need it. They uh, they need it just just to be help, uh, healthy, happy individuals. And we know, and I can really speak primarily to the U.S. So even though we're global, we do a lot of our work on the ground in the U.S. Um, the design and distribution of parks and green spaces, for example, is highly racialized. If you look at communities that were redlined for mortgages, you will find lack of access to green space. The nature gap in cities is real. And so um, the design and distribution of those outdoor spaces is not equitable. Then you have communities of color who have experienced real danger, past, present, uh, hopefully not future, and real trauma in outdoor spaces. They don't always feel welcome. They don't always feel safe. And that might be uh, a policing force within a park system or other. It might just be the way that when they enter into spaces, there have been surveys that have been taken where people of color will say, well, those parks, those are kind of white places. So there has been this societal and cultural um, lack of welcome, uh, lack of accessibility to these spaces, even if they are nearby. Um, and, and then I think about just the visual narrative of being outdoors, right? Communities of color, all people, all communities have these deep meaningful traditions in the outdoors that could be fishing that could be gardening it could be birding it could just be the way in which people think about the natural world around them but when you think about 
uh, outdoor brand advertising or what you see when you think of a resort advertising or a park advertising until very recently um, those ads, that visual story we kept telling over and over and over again did not include people of color. Uh, And so we've created this environment where even though people of color have always enjoyed the outdoors and have really beautiful, really meaningful traditions, those weren't reflected. Like all the other sectors of our society too, right? It's not just the outdoors, but those have a real impact when you don't see yourself in outdoor spaces. um, It's, do, do I feel safe there? Do I feel welcome there? Can I go there? Can I go there with my kids? Am I going to be harassed by the park police? Am I going to be welcomed by white families picnicking nearby? I think it's something we really have to grapple with as our nation deals with systemic racism on so many other scales. This access to green space is just one of them. And I think we're just in a really important time right now. And I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that you guys are raising the topic and that we, that we have an opportunity to talk about it and just really be direct and open about it and hopefully make things better. I, I think it's important step that it has to be talked about. It is important that, that we have these conversations. Otherwise nothing gets fixed. It can't be overlooked. It has to be discussed. And, you know, given that we, we, we took some, some time to talk about, what some of the issues are and how it's changed over time and what we're facing. So what are some of the solutions for these? What are some of the things that children in nature focus upon uh, and programs or, or partners that they work with to, to kind of bridge some of these gaps? Yeah. So we're, we are an organization. We don't do direct service. Like okay. we don't run camps for kids or outdoor programs. We are really looking at the big systems that impact, that impact kids lives every day where they live where they learn, where they recreate and play. And so um, we have kind of systems level, policy level programs with cities and community governments. How do we take a look at a community, see where those nature gaps exist, figure out what the barriers are by really talking to the community, right? The best ideas, the best solutions for community problems always come from the community. Uh, So how do we really engage? We have a program called Cities Connecting Children to Nature. It's in partnership with the National League of Cities, and we're working at a deep policy level to look at places that are already trusted community hubs like libraries. So we have a program, for example, called Nature Smart Libraries. We turn libraries into places of nature connection. You can go there, have nature story time, get your nature backpack, which allows a family just to go out and explore the neighborhood. You know, being connected to nature doesn't require getting in the car or a plane and flying to a national park. We'd love for everyone to have that experience, but that's not realistic. Being connected to nature can be outside your front door, turning over a rock and seeing that little squiggly bug. Or, you know, even from a balcony in a high-rise apartment building, watching birds, noticing a tree, observing weather. There are so many ways to do this. And so we, we look at strategies that can really impact kids where they are. Schools um, in America, I I learned this recently, and of course this makes sense, public schools are often the top top three public landholders in any community, and that's land specifically designated for use by children. And the state of American school grounds, too many, most of them are maybe one kind of field of grass for playing sports, Usually there's a lot of asphalt, cement, chain link fence, maybe some playground equipment, maybe a tree. Um, We have uh, our National Green Schoolyards Program um, 
has a national agenda. I think 250 organizations have now signed on to really bring access to nature on school grounds in every community in the U.S. by the year 2050. I mean, it's a big goal. Real progress is being made. And we know that when children learn outdoors, their outcomes improve. They are healthier. They are happier. They do better in school. Uh, Outdoor learning opportunities to be outdoors for restoration between classes, et cetera, helps reduce symptoms of ADHD, it reduces anxiety, it reduces stress, it improves behaviors, it promotes all of that social-emotional learning we were talking about. It is just such a powerful, powerful tool for educators, and it's literally right outside the door, and we're often not taking advantage of it. And or we throw kids out into these, you know, asphalt playgrounds that really we, we can't do better than that. So um, that is a really big area of focus for us, both in the U.S. and globally. Um, and also early childhood environments. How can we support kids are in preschools and childcare centers? How can we push nature connection strategies into those early childhood environments? So important there. And then we take a look at parks and green spaces and how do we help communities uh, reduce barriers, make them more welcoming, make themselves and make them culturally relevant again Every community on the planet, every group of people on the planet has connection to nature. This is not something that is exclusively the realm of white people. We've just kind of made it look like that in TV ads and advertising and the stories that we share. The, you know, those are all fantastic, fantastic approaches. The one that really I, I, I really, really love is the school um, because there's a positive – it's a positive way to reinforce it because there's – there's mm-hmm. negative teaching and positive teaching, and I feel that's a great positive hands-on approach. We, One of our guests, Kyle Leibarger from the mm-hmm. Native Habitat uh, Project, was just saying in – is it Alabama? Mm-hmm. Alabama where he he recognized an un, unclassified ecosystem, and the property was bought by a local school, and he was able to work with the school system where they're going to keep it and make it an outdoor classroom. Um, oh, amazing! Which is such a fantastic tool, and the right people to get involved. But it takes people to get involved and do those negotiations. In in some of these, where you're talking directly to the cities, how difficult are some of these conversations, or how receptive are they to kind of institute these plans? Because I know sometimes people get set in. You you know, it it, it may not be their their primary goal. They're looking at other things, and maybe looking at budgets or things like that. How how difficult is it to have these conversations and make a real change? Well, first of all, we have a really amazing green schoolyards team. It's led by one of my colleagues, Jamie Zaplatash. She's been in this business for a long time. And our team at the Children and Nature Network works with national partners, um, Green Schoolyards America, for example, Trust for Public Land, and then local partners in cities where we're on the ground. We're, on the, we're working on the ground in, a, I think it's 32 cities right now, um, and, and what those experts bring to the table is technical assistance. How do you first identify the barriers to creating green schoolyards to transforming, literally transforming schoolyards into places of nature connection, both for kids during the school day for learning and for restoration between classes, but also during out of school hours for the community, right? How do we turn these school grounds into small parks, places of nature connection for everyone in that surrounding area? Really, really a powerful strategy. Um, 
our our team can really help identify barriers. You know, it's often people would think, oh, it's probably budget. It's often not. It's usually things like, gosh, how do we make this happen and then maintain it? Right. Um, school maintenance staffs are not really familiar with native plants. And if we put them in, how do we keep them growing? And if we do this little bioswale here to catch storm water, what does that look like? There's liability. There's a big piece around educators. We're not teaching teachers how to do outdoor learning and outdoor class. How do you actually move a classroom outdoors? Why can't more classes be spending time outside? We saw a huge shift during COVID. Right. Schools were able to take classes outside to keep kids healthy, to keep kids safe. How do we um, do more of that and maintain that? That is that is some of the work that our team supports. Um, we, we love a school garden. That's not what we do. There are lots of great organizations doing that. We go into the district and try to work just exactly what you're talking about. How do we remove those barriers? We just produced our big international conference in Atlanta. First time in two years after being on hold for a couple of years because of COVID. Um, But in Atlanta, we were thrilled to announce with both national partners and some local folks on the ground in Atlanta, Park Pride, for example, um, a, a nine school site pilot where they are transforming those school grounds. They're creating these incredible outdoor spaces for learning, for recreation, for play. And based on the success of that, there will now be a big effort to um, transform all 93 public school grounds in Atlanta with nature, right? And so that is, if we're going to really address this problem of nature deficit disorder, that's the scale that we all need to be working at. And again, we have an amazing team that really helps identify the problems and just helps schools jump right over them and keep moving and all for the benefit of kids. And what's beautiful about that is once you have a scenario like that, now you have a pilot program that you can go to other cities and say, it's being done, it's scalable, and you can do this. And that's a that's a very big on-taking to, to think about that. Like that's – and it's admirable and it's working. It's happening. It is, which is it's working in lots of places. Grand Rapids, Michigan has a great green schoolyards program. And it's happening all across the country. Um, and the more school districts that do it and see the outcomes, both academic, public health, um, social, emotional, behavioral, it builds the evidence base and it helps us make the case for more schools to do it. Um, it's just a different way of thinking about school grounds, right? So much of school is indoors learning and we're doing, um, we're doing these tasks and we're meeting these standards. And there was just a study that came out. I wish I had it in front of me about preschools. Um, maybe saying we should just rethink this whole concept of pre-K, right? School readiness, school readiness, academics, getting kids ready for school. That is super important. And what's missing is just bringing kids together the way we used to in preschool and even in kindergarten and allowing them to play and to be outdoors and to explore and to have agency and to have some structure. Certainly you learn your alphabets and all those important things. But um, boy, if we could just uh, think about preschools differently, these outdoor forest preschools very uh, common and popular in Scandinavian countries and other parts of the world are really starting to take off in the United States. Um, it's I think that there will just be a, a continued growth and hopefully a groundswell of, of a, in this direction. It's really it's really amazing. It's it's interesting you brought up the whole idea of preschools. And now, like I said, my son's not even two yet, but we've been. My wife is a former uh, teacher, so we've talked about this kind of stuff before, and. She's like, oh, yeah, a lot of these preschools, the stuff they're learning doesn't really, I don't want to say it the wrong way, but it doesn't really matter. It's um, 
is it mm-hmm. that important that they know their ABCs? Like they have it memorized at three or at five? It's a lot of kids have them memorized earlier than that, I'm sure. But <clears throat> a lot of the stuff they were learning there wasn't, it was more memorization. It wasn't like it was helping them later on. It was impressive. And man, well, you could give a presentation about how great this preschool is. Oh, our kids know this and this and this. But it wasn't like it was beneficial in the long run. It was just something you could put your uh, feather in the cap and say, hey, look what my kid can do now. Where some of these outdoor preschool ideas are good for the socialization, connecting with nature. It's more it's skills that carry on later in life and help out in school. I, I have one preschool memory, yeah. just one, and it was – we each had to grow a bean plant, take care of that plant, and then we planted it. Mm-hmm. Like that's my preschool memory, and it's relevant today. And I don't know if that's an experience kids are necessarily getting, and we all did it together. But I love the fact of incorporating some of these things. It's it's a different way of looking at it. I think yeah. that's a whole different topic. I think school in yeah. general needs <laughs> yeah. to be yeah. re- reevaluated. But um, – but what? isn't it interesting that for you, your one preschool memory is about a connection to the mm-hmm. natural world? You know, Richard Lube, our founder, talks about when you're out in nature, all of your senses are engaged. Mm-hmm. You see, you hear, you feel the wind on your skin, you, um, you're sensing all temperature from the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're in a classroom, when you're indoors, most of those senses are kind of dulled. And when you're a kid alone on a chair or a couch looking at a screen, your world gets even smaller, right? Um, that outdoor time is so valuable. There has been a growing body of research around myopia, nearsightedness, and this almost epidemic growth of serious nearsightedness in children, which scientists are now ready to say, you know, they have to be very careful about what's causal and how we say these things, but they are now ready to say that this kind of, explosive growth in myopia is truly due to the fact that kids are not spending enough time outdoors. There's something about being outside in sunlight that helps the eyes fully develop, the eye muscles fully develop. And I mean, so that is just one of many, many factors, negative factors when kids are not getting outdoors enough. Yeah, and, and that's in preschool. I've right? read, uh, I read the book um, nature fix. So over the winter, and it has a lot of those same comments too. And I, I'm pretty sure it was in that book. They were saying how, you look at a lot of um, Asian countries, so China, Japan, how the, the nearsightedness was much higher there than in other places for that reason, that so many of their kids were spending so much more time inside than in other parts of the world. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point as well. It's, you know, and it's, we've heard so many examples from so many of our guests. Stan uh, from Temple, Al- Stan yeah. Temple uh, shared with us as a, as a child, he loved nature. It was a, a, a single parent and his mom didn't know how to help him so she would drop him off at a young age at Audubon society events and a an an older woman kind of took him under her wing and when they were out she wasn't she was teaching him a different way to look at nature she's like yeah all these people are counting birds and you can count birds and you can keep lists but you should really experience how wonderful this is and and how amazing that these things happen and how they interact and it wasn't until he was older that he realized this woman was Rachel Carson. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. And but here's this man that had this experience as a child and in his work has brought birds species back from extinction and 
uh, spoke at the first Earth Day and is now the head of the – held the, the same position that Aldo Leopold held mm-hmm. and is the head of the Aldo yeah. Leopold Foundation. You know, it's But he had those experiences as a kid that mm-hmm. – like, you can't say everyone's going to have that path, yeah. but it helped shape his path. Yeah. That's – um uh, going back to Dr. Temple and the interview we had with him on episode 100 because uh, he was a professor at the University of Wisconsin. One of the things he had mentioned is – we asked him, how did your your classes change over time? And he said, it used to be you'd have a really rural demographic who were like the hunting fish. They were out in nature all the time, and now they were in the class because they wanted to learn more about animals and, and plants and that kind of stuff. And he said his, when he was getting ready to retire, the demographic had actually shifted, and it was more uh, urban, suburban kids who were coming in, and they didn't know if you took them out to a park – they wouldn't know any of the plants or insects or anything like that, but they could tell you everything about tigers and monkeys and gorillas and everything because they'd learned it through nature programs on TV and the internet and that kind of stuff. And they were so engaged with nature, things that they'd never seen before. Um, and that was what they really were interested in. So is that, you mentioned early on the idea of using technology as a way to connect to nature. What are some of the strategies you've looked at in that realm. Yeah. Well, and I think just to pick up on the first part of your, your comment, we know that 80% of the world's people now live in urban areas. That means 80% of the world's children live in urban areas and that number is expected to rise. So a lot of what we think about is how do we um, increase access to nearby nature? Right? How do we make sure kids have access to the natural world where they are, where they live, where they play, where they go to school? That's how we, you know, form all of our work. Um, you know, again, we don't do direct service, so I don't know that we're necessarily mm-hmm. digging into these technology strategies. But there are so many great apps, and I, I think it's, you know, um, all these nature shows and animal programs on TV are all really good for teaching kids about the natural world, for helping them to develop empathy and compassion for creatures other than ourselves. We all inhabit the same planet for thinking about things like habitat, conservation, and climate. And, you know, kids are just facing an unprecedented level of stress right now, Um, even before COVID, but then certainly with COVID, we've got climate change happening. We have war. We have a global pandemic. Um, Getting out in nature is so restorative. We have all of the science that shows it can actually reduce anxiety, produce a calming effect. It just has so many benefits. And so I'm always hesitant. I maybe just growing up the way I did spending all of my time outdoors. I wish we could just leave technology at home, mm-hmm. but it's not realistic. Okay. And so that's one of the ways that you can lure the kid out of the couch, off the couch, out of the house and into the outdoors by using some of these apps. You know, geocaching was a big thing for a while. And that doesn't seem quite as it's not the new thing anymore, but it's still out there. That's a really fun way to use technology and get outdoors and explore apps. We talked about in, in your world, plant snap. It's really fun. What is this beautiful little spring ephemeral popping up? Let's find out what is this tree? Um, there are just lots of things that families can explore on their own. You know, when the Pokemon go craze hit, it did actually have an impact of getting kids outdoors. Hopefully they were watching where they were going and not stepping <laughs> yeah. out of the traffic, but there were some downsides to that too. But you know, it's technology is here to stay. And so I think it's really up to, parents and educators to, to find the right balance for their family, right? And I, I think sometimes nature connection is as simple as 
putting time, unstructured time, maybe without technology, back on the family calendar. We've got piano lessons and soccer practice and school things and all the things we do, and they all have a spot on the calendar. What would happen if parents all blacked out on the calendar, time outdoors in nature? And to really allow it to be kid-directed, where do you want to go? What do you want to explore today? And to let them start uh, expanding their horizons. Maybe the first day, we're going to walk to the end of the block and see how many birds we can find. We're going to wonder what it's like to be that bird. We're going to think about what does a worm taste like for dinner? Gross, right? I mean, really allowing kids' imaginations to just bloom and blossom and to just um, to, to allow that unstructured time to be child led and child directed, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a working parent. It's like, sometimes that's hard. It's like, okay, we got to get outside for 30 minutes. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Let's get to the park. Where's the snack? Who's got the water bottle? Oh, it shouldn't be that hard. Sometimes it's just going out on the porch, yeah. maybe going out yeah. in the backyard. Spe- speaking of geocaching for any parent that's never heard of letterboxing, it, that is yeah. something that I did with my children, and that was just my thing with my kids that we would do on our days together. And it's kind of like geocaching, but it's a set of clues. And they always happen at parks or woods or things, and it's you're, you're following it's ins- instructions, and you find a box with a stamp, and you stamp their the notebook in it. Like you make your own stamp, and then you take their stamp, and you stamp your notebook. So my kids would have a notebook. They would stamp it, and then they would write about their journey that day. Like we went to this park, and we did this, and they're everywhere. So if you were going on vacation and you had a long drive, you could stop in a couple places and do some letterboxes on the way. And then you know, it got to the point where they would just want to go to the woods and look for letterboxes. Yep. Like we found multiple letterboxes and geocaches without clues because they're like this this hole in this white oak looks like it would be a great place to put a letterbox, <laughs> yeah. you know. And it's it was a it was a great way to get them engaged without them realizing they were kind of getting pushed into engage. (laughs) One of the things I've been doing a lot of is, um, is you mentioned plant snap, uh, before, but I use an app called iNaturalist and what has helped with me is, okay, I'm going through and there's so many things that I used to just kind of stumble across and say, Oh, I got to remember this and remember what it looked like. So I can look it up later. And I'd always forget exactly what it looked like. And trying to match up pictures on Google images. Now you kind of have, I don't want to say the answer in your phone or in your hand or pocket, but you can get a clue. And that's what I was walking around. I just stumbled across this one interesting thing I hadn't seen before. And I took a picture of it and used an iNaturalist. I found it was a uh, one flowered cancer root is what it was called. And it's like a, just a, I guess it's a parasitic plant. And um, yeah, but I would have never known. And I would have probably forgotten to look it up had I not had that there. So it was a way for me to, learn more and kind of be interactive with nature by using technology and, and coming out smarter for it. And now you want to take care of that plant and make sure. Oh yeah. It, yeah. Now mm-hmm. I know it's there and I, I want to remember it and hopefully be able to show my son one day. And, um, but it's, I think that's for people who don't necessarily know their plants, not saying Fran and I know our plants like amazingly, but if for people who don't know their plants, just using something like that can, when you're walking along can make it, now interactive and say, oh, this is a, a, a persimmon tree. And, oh, did you know you can eat the fruit and that it used to be made or they used to make golf clubs out of it back when Fran was a, a kid? Wow. <laughs> that kind of well, stuff. And those apps allow kids to sort of become the experts, yeah. right? When they yeah. find the thing they don't know and they use the app to identify it and they can tell someone else about it. We're building their confidence. We're building their um, 
their imagination, their capacity to learn. I think it's really exciting. Um, there are some things online too that aren't exactly apps, but that sort of tap into technology. Things like thousand hours outside. There's a kind of a challenge to spend a thousand hours outdoors. There's we're, the we're 52 doing that. hike. Oh, yay, the 52 hike challenge, right? These hikes don't have to be in the mountains. They can be around the block. There are some things that can kind of get kids excited and they feel like they're having a little contest and it's becomes, and it doesn't always have to be in a family environment. It could be in a preschool. It could be with the neighbors. It could be with a, a grandparent. Uh, it could be done with a, a, a sitter, someone who comes in and nannies in the summer, whatever it is, a classroom can do it. So some of these on, we uh, This summer, in June, we're going to be launching our second Vitamin N Challenge, oh. where we really kind of crowdsource great ideas from families about how to get outdoors, spend more time outdoors. Vitamin mm-hmm. N, and for Nature. Richard Lube also wrote a book uh, called Vitamin mm-hmm. N. Um, so we'll be launching that this summer. So I think there are a lot of um, ways to tap into technology to support really great, healthy outdoor lifestyles, and we're all for that. Speaking of technology and resources what are what are some of the resources that your website may offer to the public uh yeah so we house and make freely available the largest collection of peer-reviewed literature scientific literature on the benefits of nature it is available to anyone it's great for teachers researchers use it parents use it people writing grant applications for their outdoor programs use it our website is childrenandnature.org and from our website, you can access our research library. You can search uh, by geography, by age group. You can learn about the benefits of nature for academic outcomes, for social-emotional learning, for stress reduction, for encouraging conservation behaviors in kids. It is true when you connect kids to nature and they spend time in nature, they grow to care about and take care of nature. And we're going to need that, obviously, as this you know, climate crisis that we are truly in continues. Our next generations are going to be, you know, we're handing them a, a pretty serious problem. How do we support them? Um, both in understanding the importance of, but also in having some hope. These are really serious problems. Kids are um, faced with a lot of stress, a lot of big issues right now. Um, spending time outdoors in nature can really help mitigate some of that and connect them to the natural world. So what, what is your favorite accomplishment with children in nature? What's what's one thing that you're most proud of in in your time with the organization? Wow. Well, I've been with the organization for quite a few years since 2016. I boy, I just love this is the the best job I've ever had. I'm very passionate about it. Um, I think. Just the way, I mean, I could drill into what we're doing with Green Schoolyards is incredible. What we're doing with city policymakers is incredible. What we're doing with youth leadership development is incredible. Um, But I think all of those things are supported by the work we do to foster belief and grow a movement of people who care about this topic. Um, We maybe will always be in the position of having to make the case for nature. I hope not. I hope someday it's just part of everything that we do, but the work that we've done over the last several years to raise awareness of this topic. I mean, you guys found us and here we are having a really good conversation. Um, We have to continually make the case so that nature is not just a nice to have, but a truly essential fundamental part of childhood. Um, And I'm, I'm really proud of the work we've done to elevate that conversation, to help people understand the importance so that they can then take action, right? It's all about 
informing and building awareness and then building action and mobilizing more action that uh, because all the work that my teammates, um, I get to do the great job of talking about it. They're really the ones out doing all the amazing work. Um, I, I'm really proud of the work we're doing to make the case to foster belief. Our research library is led by Dr. Catherine Jordan out of the University of Minnesota. That building of evidence is so critical to moving this issue forward and to advancing our mission. So I'm, I love everything we do, but I am really excited about that. That's that's awesome. And what's what's next? What what is there any programs that are kind of in the works that we may hear about or, or see in the future? Well, we're going to continue this work with Green Schoolyards and hopefully continue to scale that and expand into more communities across the country. We this last year, uh, very late last. Uh, it was November of 2021, launched an international Green Schoolyards cohort that is right now with support from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, um, going out and collecting case studies of the best green schoolyards practices from around the world. Oh. Um, and we're going to be creating case studies around those that will help inform the work. So I think that'll be, uh, you know, there are many, many organizations doing incredible things. Like no one's ever done that full global scan and really highlighted the things that are really working. Um, we've just launched a national partnership with Roots and Shoots, which is the um, uh, kind of direct service youth service arm of the Jane Goodall Institute. They're working communities to really help kids get involved in projects and ways to make their communities better, often related to climate and the environment and the natural world. So I think uh, moving into some, as we've grown our capacity to partner with other big national organizations, like we do with the National League of Cities, grows. And I think that's where our growth will come. We can't do this alone. And in fact, no one sector can do this alone. The Maybe the other thing that I'm most proud of sometimes in our work is that we truly are cross-sector. And to solve this problem, it is going to take educators and it's going to take city leaders and it's going to take parents and pediatricians. You know, there's this wonderful program, Dr. Robert Zarr up in Canada, you guys should get him on your show, um, has led this work around Parks Rx for a long time working with pediatricians to actually prescribe nature wow, and to help families connect to nature as a way to mitigate things like childhood obesity and early onset diabetes and all kinds of things. So um, I think the next big leap for us will be continuing to build out these national partnerships that help us scale our work, that bring in more partners. We, we do a lot of preaching to the choir and we have the best choir on the planet, <laughs> but how do we get out beyond the choir? How do we pull more people into this work? How do we engage more national partners? I think that's really, that's kind of the next big horizon. You're posing all fantastic questions that we contemplate. One of Tom's uh, visions for this podcast when it started was we work with all these great nonprofits, all that pretty much want the same thing or are doing the same thing for their goals, but don't necessarily work together. You know, it's, uh, what was that, the deer uh, oh, uh, there's the National Deer Association, Association is doing stuff mm-hmm. that quail, well, they work with quail forever, um, but like Audubon societies are, a lot of these places are doing the same things. Um, and a lot of times they are working together, but there's plenty of times that they aren't where you could find a, a, a partner with a common goal in an unlikely place. Yeah. So, and it's, it's, I, it's nice to see someone engaging that and practicing yeah. that as part of their model. And and we applaud you for that. That's that's fantastic. Thank you. Well, thanks. I, and thanks for what you guys are doing to kind of you know have these conversations. I have uh, one maybe brief question because it's not really something you you guys do. I don't think. But are adults just left behind? 
are there things for for adults too that maybe they wish they had the opportunities to get into nature as a kid but aren't now or maybe they just don't know they need nature in their life well i think it's probably a combination of both of those things right and adults are never left behind everybody needs time outdoors um we we focus on these systems you know adults are making decisions for kids so another big system for children is their families and caregivers parents, caregivers, grandparents, those are the people making decisions about how and where children spend their time. So we're going to be digging more into our family support work. We do a lot of work with um, national organizations that are, for example, training social workers who support families and using nature-based therapeutic strategies to help families maybe in crisis or who are experiencing some difficulties. Um, but all families, like I talked about, even just, you know, that idea of putting nature back on the family calendar, it's pretty simple, but I hadn't thought of it till I heard of it. So, um, you know, we have a family nature club, uh, club program that we're going to start building out our family nature or our vitamin N challenge this summer. These are all things that are obviously adult driven, right? And I think when you as an adult are committed to getting your kids outdoors, you're going to benefit from that as well. We know that when families spend time outdoors together, it, it strengthens family bonds, family communication is improved. And this, everything I say is science fact. We're really um, very serious about the evidence base. And if we're going to make claims about nature, making kids happier, healthier, and more successful in school, we can back it up with a thousand and twelve, I believe is the number studies currently in our research library. So um yeah, adults are definitely not left behind. We all need nature. During COVID, there was this huge explosion of interest in getting outdoors and going to parks. The interesting thing about that, it was primarily adults. Mm-hmm. Kids weren't necessarily going with them. And that happened globally. So there's some work to be done there too. What? Um, how can our listeners get involved if they wanted to donate or get involved in some of these things? What What are or, some of the past things? Or, um, or become a part of the pro- uh, vitamin N. Yeah, well, on our website, which is childrenandnature.org, this summer you'll be able to sign up and participate in the Vitamin N Challenge. It's really fun. We'll have all kinds of stuff going on and social, wonderful activities, and really tips generated from families. Families are the experts in how to make things work for their own families, and many of their ideas are easily transferable, and maybe you make a few tweaks to make it work for your household or for kids in your life that you care about. Um, we are a membership organization. We welcome members. People are thrilled to have members. It's a little bit of the national public radio model, right? If you like what we do, please uh, support us so that we can keep curating the research to make the case, that we can keep building this policy, this body of policy work to change the way kids interact with the outdoors. Um, We have events. Typically, we have this big conference every year. It's cross-sector. Everyone from school principals to public health officials to parents come. Right. Anyone who is committed and concerned about the health and well-being of children is warmly welcomed into the children and nature movement. We are a global movement. You can find uh, regional nature collaboratives in Texas, Minnesota, Cincinnati, all over the place. San Francisco has an incredible children and nature program. And we'd like to see more of those spring up. We can support those with resources and tools and training. So um, we welcome everyone. Check out our website. We have a really cool a bi-weekly news product called Finding Nature News, where we highlight incredible stories from incredible people out in the world, out in the field, doing this nature connection work. It's a easy, fast read. I find it very uplifting and hopeful. It's That is one of my favorite things to do every <laughs> week at work, is to tell those stories. Um, 
so we, again, warm welcome. Please check us out and, you know, contact us anytime. Awesome. For, for the sake of time, we, we could easily talk to you for another hour with that, <laughs> with that. But for the sake of time, we're going to ask you our traditional last question, which is the simplest and sometimes the hardest. What is your favorite native plant? Well, as a master naturalist through the University of Minnesota Extension Service, All right. it was a wonderful opportunity to learn the Latin names of plants. And so I'm going to tell you my favorite, but I don't know if it, I think it's native to Minnesota, which is where okay. I'm located. Okay. My favorite native plant in my scheme of the world is the Pinus strobus, the white oh, pine. Very nice. The glorious, mighty white pine. I grew up in northern Minnesota um, on the shore of Lake Superior, and that that tree for me is just emblematic of the way I grew up and it's just such this beautiful strong tree up against you know taller than any other tree up against the beautiful you know beautiful blue sky so pinostrobus the white pine you'll have to tell me I'm gonna look it up now I, I think it's native I'm, it's an old I'm, uh, I'm, I am looking up right now I'm 99 percent sure that I I am it's too. gotta be I am too but if I'm wrong you want to just lie and pretend I was right it's <laughs> But it's such a stately tree, but also delicate at the same time, uh, and it's strong and fragile at the same time. It's one of those things. It's such a uh, such a beautiful choice, and and creates such fantastic habitat. Yeah, yeah. Bo- yeah. Bonap says that it is native in uh, in Minnesota. All right, there you go. Yay! <laughs> it's, it's my favorite. No matter what it is, it is my favorite plant. Always. Well, that is the first time that plan has been mentioned. So we we appreciate that. And that's a wonderful choice. Um, So we always kind of end the show where we'll each take a turn with a final thought. And we we hand it over to you first. And you can summarize. You can promote something. uh, However you want to use the time, we hand you the floor. Well, thanks. I just first want to say thank you for having me. And really, on behalf of everyone at Children and Nature Network, we're always grateful to have opportunities, again, to kind of talk out beyond the people we talk to regularly. Um, this this issue of nature connection right now with kids, I don't know if you guys saw back in November of 2021, maybe December, the U.S. Surgeon General declared a mental health crisis for kids in America. Again, facing so many unprecedented challenges all at one time, a global pandemic, climate change, I mean, just a million things, war. Um the power of nature to help soothe, to restore, um, to reduce anxiety, to improve mood, to reduce symptoms of things like ADHD, to really support kids' mental health. Um, there is such a grow, there is already a very large body of evidence and it grows every day. And we're starting to see different communities of practice look at nature right outside the door as a strategy for supporting kids. And right now, I really, I mean, I have a 16 year old, I see it. Kids are, kids are in crisis Um, and kids in all walks of life, but in particular kids who are living in lower income communities who have lots of barriers to resources due to race or geography or whatever that might be. Systemic racism is, is real and still alive in America. Um, Nature is an antidote and it's a really powerful one. And if there's anything that we can do to help people connect to nature and, and put more of it in their lives and get more of it into their kids' lives. I just truly believe, and I have seen the evidence that it makes a difference and any little step makes a difference. You do not have to get in the car and drive to Yosemite. You can walk <laughs> around the block and it makes a difference every single day, every time you do it. Uh, that is an awesome final thought. Would you like to go or would you like me to go? Tom? Um, 
I can go. Okay. Yeah, so I I mentioned the book I've just started reading in the beginning because I got it for my birthday and um, I, in the beginning Happy it. Birthday. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it 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 talks about how uh, when he first had his first son, who's eleven now, but he's had his first son, and then it's like a couple of weeks go by, and he's like, "How are we ever going to get out of the house again?" And then it was just using those strategies of, "Hey, we can go camping. We can do stuff." And how important it is to get outside because it is so impactful not just on your life, but your, your children's life. So um, I'm looking forward to, one, reading the book, and then when I'm done reading the book, getting outside <laughs> with awesome. my son. So. Awesome. So my final thought is whenever you think as an individual you, you understand what makes the wheel turn, there's always another spoke. And we hope today was another spoke that that you're recognizing. Um, and it's And it's something that can start with you, and it's a way that you can make a difference in your everyday life or your children's lives. So um, we hope you learned something new, even though it seems like something simple and that we should all do. We don't all do it, and it takes practice. And there's a lot of resources for you to, to help you with this. But just it's another way we can all we can all be involved in, in, in so many different facets. So um, and thank you for opening our eyes for that. And I hope our listeners yeah. learned uh, learned a lot today. So that's going to wrap us up. Uh, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Laura Milan. Yes. Did I get it right? Okay. <laughs> for, <laughs> for more information, visit www.childreninnature.org. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. Thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing uh, theme music to our show. Uh, make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume your music. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. Uh, I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question, leave a comment. We'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And uh, thank you to all the new members at the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, and a good job for our community for welcoming uh, welcome, yeah, welcoming them all. Yeah, so you, uh, you can buy our podcast merch and listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Remember, when you click the link at the top, it takes you to our Teespring store. Uh, we don't collect any of the money. It's all going to go to uh, organizations that we like to support that are doing stuff with nature and native plants and all that kind of stuff. So you have so, a good message and you support some yeah, great and organizations. it's very fashionable and Fran's been wearing his shirts all I week. I have so, one on right now. Um, if you are going to listen to the podcast, you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. So if you're, if, when you're there, if it's possible, leave a five-star review. And, uh, and if you do a little write-up with that review, I'll give you a shout-out on one of our Buzz episodes. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Laura, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, coming up next week, we have another Buzz episode, so make sure you tune in. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.